Good afternoon, everyone, and welcome to the final session of IFG 10, the Institute for Government's 10th anniversary conference, uh, which is on the future of policymaking. I'm Gavin Freegard. I'm Programme Director here, responsible for our work on data and digital government. And I'm sure data and technology will be peppering the discussion that we'll have shortly. Um, a few bits of housekeeping first of all. Um, we'd very much like to thank PA Consulting, our headline sponsor for today, and the Advertising Association, APM, Burgess Salmon, and Civil Service College for supporting today's conference. Um, some other housekeeping, we are on the record and we are being live streamed, so hello to anybody watching us online. Uh, we would love you to join in the discussion on Twitter. We are tweeting from at IFG events using the hashtag IFG10. And if you're in the room, you can get onto our Wi-Fi, which I think is IFG guest. The username is IFG, all lowercase, and the password is visitor, also all lowercase. So the future of policymaking, a nice big topic for us to end the day with. Um, policymaking is part of the core business of any government, and it's been at the core of the Institute's work over our first 10 years. New techniques and new technology, think behavioural science or randomised control trials or data science, have changed the way that that core business has been conducted. And as those techniques mature, technology develops and new trends emerge, how we do policy will continue to evolve. Back in 2011, the Institute for Government came up with seven fundamentals of good policymaking. Clarity on goals, open and evidence-based idea generation, rigorous policy design, responsive external engagement, thorough appraisal, clarity on the role of central government and accountability, and establishment of effective mechanisms for feedback and evaluation. So how might all of those things be affected by new trends? What are the challenges and what are the opportunities what might we be discussing at IFG 20 in 10 years' time? Well, we've got a fantastic panel for you this afternoon to discuss all of those questions and more. We'll be starting with a keynote speech, complete with some intriguing slides, from Professor Sendil Mullanathan. Uh, Sendil is the University Professor of Computation and Behavioural Science at the University of Chicago's Booth School of Business. His current research uses machine learning to understand complex problems in human behaviour, social policy and especially medicine and healthcare. His past work has combined insights from economics and behavioural science with lab, field and natural experiments to study big social problems such as discrimination and poverty. He's previously taught at Harvard and at the Massachusetts Institute of Technology. He's a recipient of the MacArthur Genius Grant and has featured in top global thinker and global leader lists published by the World Economic Forum, Foreign Policy Magazine and Wired Magazine. We'll then have the first response from our first panellist, Rachel Glenister. Uh, Rachel is the Chief Economist at the UK's Department for International Development. Between 2004 and 2017, she was the Executive Director of the Abdul Latif Jamil Poverty Action Lab, JPAL, which is a research centre at MIT that seeks to reduce poverty by ensuring policy is informed by scientific evidence. Her own research spans a huge number of fields, governance, education, health, microcredit, community development and women's empowerment. She's the co-author of Strong Medicine, Creating Incentives for Pharmaceutical Research on Neglected Diseases, and also Running Randomised Evaluations, a Practical Guide. She's also held positions at the International Monetary Fund, the UK Treasury, and also at the Harvard Institute for International Development. After Rachel, we'll then be having our second response from Dr. David Halpin. 
Uh, David's the chief executive of the Behavioural Insights team, which he's led since its inception in 2010. Before that, he was the founding director of the Institute for Government, the UK's leading think tank working to make government more effective. <laughs> Um, before that, uh, between 2001 and 2007, he was the Chief Analyst at the Prime Minister's Strategy Unit. Since 2013, he's been the What Works National Advisor, leading efforts to improve the use of evidence across government, and I'm sure we'll touch on that later as well. Before entering government, he held posts at Cambridge, Oxford and Harvard, and has written several books and papers on areas around behavioural insights, well-being and policy, including social capital, the hidden wealth of nations, and is one of the co-authors of the Mindspace Report, again published by the fantastic Institute for Government think tank. Uh, in 2015, he wrote a book about the Nudge Unit and its effect on government. So we'll hear Sandil's keynote with the wonderful slides, then we'll have the responses from Rachel and David. At about quarter past four, so after we've had some discussion uh, between the panel, we'll throw it out to audience questions. Remember, we are on the record. And then at quarter to five, we'll draw the discussion to a close, and we'll have some closing remarks from the director from the Institute of Government, Bronwyn Maddox. So without further ado, Sandil. All right, thank you. Um, <clears throat> see if this works. I've got a clicker. Let's see if that... Oh, there we go. Um, so the first thing I want to do is to talk about uh, one of my favorite papers of all time. Um, this is a paper involving cows. Um, though this paper, this photo of cows is not very typical of them because here the cows are all looking at us, or at least the person with the camera. What this paper was involved, was interested in is a very, I'm sure, question that's been on all of your minds which is when cows stand in a field, which way do they face? <laughs> it's kind of an important question. It's, it's important because a lot of farmers have had speculation over this question for generations uh, as to which way they face. It's a hard question because how would you get data on which way cows are facing when they stand in the field? I mean, you can imagine, and in fact, you know, this is what you probably imagine faculty do, sending out poor research assistants who must do my bidding to go look at, at and, and sadly, that is not the life we live. So <clears throat> the researchers working on this problem had this uh, problem, and then they had a really nice insight, which was uh, Google Earth. So they went, uh, for those of you who have never been to Google Earth, Google Earth is basically effectively satellite photos of uh, all large portions of the Earth. So they said, why don't we just take the satellite photos and mark which way the cows face on those satellite photos. And in fact, this is a relatively old paper. Today we would process all of those images uh, and we would simply just automatically get a sense of which way cows are facing. At this time, they didn't have the kind of computer vision processing we did, so they had, yes, that's right, research assistants go through, look photo by photo. <laughs> Um, and here's what they found. They found an amazing fact, not just about cows, but about roe deer and about deer. They face magnetic north. Isn't that weird? <laughs> not north-north. It's not about which way the sun is. They look at places in the southern hemisphere versus the northern hemisphere where the sun plays in different parts. No, especially deer. They're facing magnetic north. I like this paper partly because it touches on the absurd and the idea that you would embark on this journey and end up with the paper in the Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences. It does have an element of absurdity. But 
I like it because the discovery is pretty striking. It's the kind of things that we can learn from data that we could never even imagine was to be true. This has opened up a set of questions. What is the magnetic sensor inside of all of these animals? There is no physiological understanding of where there might be magnetosensor. It's weird. It also liked this paper because it's interesting and useful for things other than cows. Uh, this is a picture many of you may have seen of an island uh, uh, country uh, in Asia. Do any of you know this island country? No? No one? Maybe I misspoke by calling it an island country. It's not, it's not an island country, though in this nighttime image it looks like an island country. Does that help? So this is actually South Korea. And if you want to, why this is interesting is this is a way to understand economic development of North Korea. If you believe North Korean GDP numbers, all their economic development is happening during the day. <laughs> These type of things are very, very powerful. We can now start to collect data on economic systems using metrics that we never had ability before. I'll give some examples of how satellite images are transforming uh, our data collection. But here's another one. This is based on an experience that, that I had in which I honestly felt really bad for a little bit because it's when I realized that sometimes my students listen to me and they really ought not to. I was complaining to my student, Laura Truco. I was saying to her, I'm convinced that I think, I think Apple's slowing down my phone. I really think, yeah, they're doing it to sell more phones. So obviously you shouldn't listen to crazy people. But she decided that she was going to take me seriously and she went and produced this figure. So this figure is Google searches for the phrase iPhone slow over about a seven year period. Now people have extended this out. It has some noticeable peaks. <laughs> Any guesses what those peaks are? That's right. My tinfoil hat really worked this time. At the times of iPhone releases, for some reason, mysterious reason, Lots of people find their iPhones getting very, very slow. In part because of this evidence and then some things that were discovered, there was actually a lawsuit that's been brought by very, various attorney generals. But you can use these type of Google search data for a lot more type of information. So here's a great paper by um, Choi and Varian where what they've done is they've taken Google search and they've shown they can predict Toyota sales and uh, Chevrolet sales before they even announce their numbers because you know people who are searching. You can get unemployment numbers well before the labor ministry actually collects them. Why? Because the unemployed search for certain things. Another source of data where I think people are starting to work is by this Pulse Lab Kampala, which is at the UN. They have started to just collect data and development from totally different sources. Many, many people listen to the radio, and there are many, many radio stations. So they've started as one of their projects to simply collect all of that radio data and start storing it, which has allowed them to start looking at throughout, I think this is Uganda, throughout Uganda, they're able to see what conversations people are having on the radio about what and get early warnings of things like uh, ethnic divisions or those type of things. And they've started mapping all of these conversations. I'll end on one and then we can stop this bit. I just, I wanted to do this bit to just give you a sense that the biggest thing that's changing is our notion of what data even is. 
that we now have the ability to get data, which is, you know, if you think of traditionally, it was uh, statistical agencies going out and doing surveys. That's not going to stop, nor should that even, you know, abate. But we now have many, many other vehicles for starting to collect data on behavior and get sense of what's happening. This is perhaps my favorite. This is a paper uh, by some uh, electrical engineers that I thought was just spectacular. And it, I found it interesting because one of the big problems in farming is uh, rainfall. And one of the big challenges of rainfall is getting um, rainfall collection stations. Because you, know, you put them out there, and they need to collect data on rainfall. And you, so, so this is how we currently collect rainfall data. So this paper pointed out there's a different way to collect rainfall data, or at least potentially, which is this. This is a cell phone tower. So how is a cell phone tower a rainfall data collector? Well, it turns out that cell phone towers, for purposes of just being able to transmit packets of your calls to each other, send constant pings, which are standardized packets that they send to each other as a measure of quality and to adjust any line loss, et cetera. Guess what happens when there's rain? Those pings show certain signatures of line loss. So now people have shown just by using that data, we can actually get very reliable rainfall numbers at very, very low levels of granularity. So I want to open your eyes to this whole, the first thing I think in the future of policy is that I think we're going to have an explosive period over the next 10, 20 years where we will just dramatically change the data landscape. And these are just the beginnings of people being opportunistic and being intelligent and clever about bringing a lot of things into the fold. And so I would say data in the public good is probably the biggest change. I don't think this is going to happen on its own. And I think that's important to keep in mind. And for that, I'll just tell you a parable between two different sectors. The first sector is computer vision. So for those of you who don't know, ImageNet, and there are other data sets like it. I use ImageNet as a placeholder. There, there are at least three good data sets like this and, and, and several more. Almost everything you see today in computer vision is due to data sets like this, which were open, allowed many researchers to compete and collaborate. That's why the field of computer vision has really taken off. Then, of course, private actors took those type of knowledge and have now built engineering solutions well beyond what you could get just from ImageNet. But the starting point is and still remains these data sets. In contrast, there's another field, which is audio processing, which has not taken off in any way, uh, in anywhere near the same level. For example, right now, most computer science departments are hiring quite a few people in computer vision, but not nearly as many in audio processing. The big difference is there are big, big data sets in audio processing. They just look like this. They are not public data sets. There is not many processing data sets that the entire field can compete and collaborate on. And that is a big divide, because you might have heard everyone talks about data being the new oil, et cetera, which means that's leading to a monopolization of this, uh, this asset, which can be good for the private actors, but is not data in the public good. And even a minor amount of data, the amount of computer vision data out there sitting in private actors is 10 to 100x the size of ImageNet. But having a foundational basis that's available to many people is what catalyzes the entire field. 
the reason I'm highlighting that is I think that's, an, that's a problem we're facing in an, in an area where we're going to hit it very, very hard, which is in health. You look at all of the data sets, x-ray data, MRI data, CT data, all of that data, private actors are going to acquire them. That's not bad. That's good. That stuff will come of it. But there are no public data sets, or it doesn't need to be public, research or accessible. We're not building the foundation for a field of computational medicine. So I think we need to be putting activities into that. I'm working with some people at an organization called Nightingale whose sole goal is to go and convince some providers that it's in their interest not just to sell to, um, well, I don't want to name companies, but let's say, let's make up a company, Google, um, <laughs> and to not just to sell to this company, uh, but perhaps also to contribute some of this data so that you can contribute to the public good of which science, et cetera, entirely feeds on. I think this is actually even good for Google because in all the computer vision work that led to, um, that led to things like self-driving cars, that helped everybody in those spaces. So I think data in the public good is, I think, the first thing that we ought to really focus on. And without that, most of these fields will never really uh, flourish. The second thing I want to talk a little bit about is uh, some work we did about five years ago, four years ago now, which started with the problem that's a very American problem, uh, which is America has a lot of a lot of things, including arrests. So every year we arrest about 12 million people. And right after arrest, there's a decision that has to be made about these uh, individuals. Uh, would they be sent home to wait for trial, or would they wait in a place like this? This decision is very, very, very consequential. In the United States, the average jail stay, the average number of people in jail is around three-quarter of a million. Now, that's a distinction that's worth making, which is jail is primarily for people who are waiting for trial. This is not the prison population. In fact, about a third of the entire incarcerated population in the United States are people waiting. It's not people who've been incarcerated for a crime. They're just waiting to be tried. And they're going to wait quite some time. The average jail stay, conditional on being put in jail, is about two to three months in most jurisdictions. And there are some jurisdictions which are about nine to 12. So this is a very consequential thing. Now, the flip side is also consequential. You can't just let everyone out, some would argue, because what if they go on to commit a crime? You had them. You caught them. So the decision of who to jail is fundamentally the challenge in this area. Of course, the interesting thing about the decision of who to jail is, by law, it's a sort of a problem where the judge takes a defendant history, and they're not trying to judge whether the person is guilty. That's a separate issue. That's a complicated problem. They're simply just judging, will they commit a crime if I were to release them now while waiting for trial? Do they pose a public safety risk? Do they pose a flight risk? That's a pure prediction problem. And those are the kind of problems algorithms do an excellent job of. They are able to take the data on defendant history, look at the outcome, and form a prediction. This is actually no different structurally than an algorithm that says, is there a face in this photo? Is there a pedestrian in this image? It's literally the same problem. So you could build an algorithm to do this activity. Well, what do you find when you do that? So here's what we've, what we've done. We've, we've rank ordered, we built our algorithm on, from New York on a data of about three quarter of a million people. And we've simply, I've ranked order here people according to their um, predicted uh, uh, risk. And I've said, look, on the, left axis, on the left side is what happens if we release no one, the American solution. 
on the right axis is we release everyone and what, what the crime rate we would get in between. So this is a policy choice. Where do you want to be? How many people do you want to release? But importantly, we'd like to know how well is the algorithm doing relative to our current status quo. So right now, we jail 26% of the people for a crime rate of about 11.3%. The algorithm at that 11.3% would only jail 15.4%. So we could cut jail populations in about 40% and have no effect on crime. So the ability of these algorithms to sort people is really much better than the ability of humans to sort people. And the magnitude here is crazy. Rikers is a big jail in, in New York. My co-author on this likes to say, if algorithms were around, we could close Rikers in July. Now, I'm not sure about the math, whether July is 60% of the way through, but, and I'm not sure I trust Jens to do the math right, but you can make it August if you want. What's interesting, of course, is that in addition to this, we actually find that the people who benefit the most from this are actually disadvantaged blacks and Hispanics can, can get, the huge, get the biggest benefits out of these consequences, which we can come back to later. I'm saying this because this category of problem is a category of problem that appears everywhere in policy and we have simply not had the tools to solve before, which are problems where they're prediction problems. The problems where we're making a decision and we can build algorithms in the public interest to improve the quality of those decisions because underlying those decisions is a prediction. So the core problem is predictive. We're not asking what works. For that, we have a suite of, of, of tools. This is not a substitute for that. This is for who and when, who, which of these people will be most likely to commit a crime. There's a clear goal in this problem and individualization is essential. And importantly, think about all the data that is just sitting within reach to solve this problem. I'll just go through a few examples so that you get a sense of it. So uh, a problem in the United States that you might have heard of is police brutality, which a lot of interventions could be designed for. But in a way, it's also a prediction problem because we know the record of police. Can we predict which police officers are most likely to be involved in a brutal situation before it actually happens. There's some reason to believe so, because if you look after the fact, you'll find this was not the first offense. It's not like out of the blue the cops started beating somebody. Here's another one, a much more grim one, domestic violence. Every year, um, in, in nearly every jurisdiction, advanced country we've worked in, you've noticed this fact, the police are often called to a house and they're called because there's a loud, uh, I was gonna say quarrel, but I think, I'm gonna try the British word row. Is that right? Is that, is that, oh, I'm stopping right here. I don't think it gets better than this. So, uh, the, called because there was, there was a row, the police have to make a decision. Is this a couple that, as many couples do, are just fighting? Or is this a couple that might be at the risk of some serious domestic violence? they have to make this decision. It's an implicit prediction they make, which then they sometimes send uh, social services. But that's a classic example. There's like an audio of a call, there's like other background history. Can we make a better predictor of domestic violence? Another one that happens a lot, many people, when they go to buy their first home, the question they ask, how much house can I afford? It's a very basic question but it's not a question for which we actually have an answer. What we do have an answer of 
is how much house can you afford that's good for the bank? But that's not what you want the answer for. And just so you understand that, your home mortgage will be one of the last things you'll default on. The bank giving you that mortgage will make sure they're not going to give you more than you will default on the mortgage for. But if you take a loan that's so big that you start running credit card payments late and you don't have much savings, and you're, that is not good for you. Perfectly fine for the bank. So it's a very simple prediction problem. Here's your financials and ask what's the probability of late payments, et cetera, on your other things. Oh, let's keep going with this. People looking for jobs, they need to make a prediction problem. Given my resume, who are the people most likely to hire me? How can I know what that is? It's just a simple prediction problem. If we're going to go hire teachers, there are lots of places around the world where we try to incentivize teachers. But we can ask the question, given everything we know at the time of hiring or promotion, which teachers will have the highest value add by whatever metric we were going to use to incentivize them anyway. So all personnel selection problems have this feature. Um, let me end on this one. Uh, it's often the case that we get the famines too late. But does it have to be? Going back to satellite data, we have a ton of information where we can see crop yields before the crops are ever outside of the ground. And this is just a very simple prediction problem. Actually, I have one more, which I'll tell you, because this one is kind of tragic to me. Every year, uh, picture a, a college student who's joining for the first time, uh, uh, going to a college, and is trying to figure out, you know, poor student, nobody in their family has gone to college before, and they're trying to figure out what, um, what class should I take. Should I take the introductory math class, or should I take the remedial math class? It's a very consequential decision for the student. If they take the remedial math class, they've wasted a, an entire semester, which is quite costly when you're working and paying. If they take the introductory math class and do badly, they could feel totally demoralized and say, college is not for me. So for this person, what we currently offer is some sort of guidance counselor on the fifth floor who might give them some guess. But we have the entire transcript, and we have all the course grades of people like them who have gotten these class, we could give the most personalized answer. In fact, I end these talks by saying it's ironic if that same student were to go home that day and try to decide what movie should I watch. They have the world's best data scientists to help them with that question. But if they're trying to figure out what course I should take, well, there's a guidance counselor on the fifth floor. So algorithms in the public interest. Now let me end on a brief thing to say, which is the third thing I want to point out, which is more of an error of, of, uh, of omission rather than commission. I pulled a fast one on you in this talk. And here's the fast one I pulled on you. When I said, look, this is what our algorithm does, you should have been asking yourself, how on earth do you know this is what your algorithm does? Did you deploy it? Was there a randomized control trial? In fact, one reason you should be suspicious of my assertion is that the algorithm is going to go to the existing data, and it's going to say, OK, you should release these people and jail these people at this rate. Fine. And then I said, I put a crime rate on, the, on this y-axis. You say, but how could you get that crime rate? You don't know what all the people who were jailed in your data set would have done had they been released. So in this paper, we go to great lengths to solve this problem, but you will see many papers that somehow brush these problems aside. So I want to end on the last point, which is that the danger of 
all these introductions of algorithms and these data is that we lose sight of the fact that nothing has really changed about the need to evaluate policies. Just because the policy has an algorithm underneath it doesn't make it any different. Just like you'd want to evaluate a guidance counselor policy, you'd want to evaluate an algorithm for giving course recommendations in the exact same way. It doesn't change that it's a piece of digital code than a piece of biological code. So I would say, let me end on this and just say, I think to me these are sort of two promising areas and one sort of just a cautionary reminder that we need to maintain the vigilance we've had on evaluation the whole way. All right, thank you. Invited me here. Um, so I'm going to pick up where Sandal left off and talk a bit about how we can use uh, this kind of work within government. What are the promising uses? What are the cautionary tales? And also then a little bit on, and we can get back in question and answer about how do we combine this kind of data and this kind of work with other types of evidence and other types of data? Because I think. That's where the judgment of being a good policymaker is what it's all about, is how to take different kinds of data and different kinds of evidence to make decisions. So um, let me just start by saying the problem of how do we use data and evidence in government is, is you know, centuries old since we first got the you know, first um, censuses. Uh, governments have been worrying about this. Um, I think it's worth just being really clear about what's different about machine learning and um, artificial intelligence, which is that it's, we, we start the process by giving the computer, we get these complicated algorithms by starting with a really simple first you know, instruction to the computer. So you know, 50,000 cats uh, and 50,000 non-cats, you know, pick what, what is a cat. Um, or, this is a lot of people who are in poverty. This is a lot of data about them. Uh, these people are poor. These people are not. Uh, you know, now predict who's poor. So we start with a simple question, and the computer learns and comes up with a complicated answer. Um, the, the challenge for policy is that exactly what is behind the algorithm is not very transparent. It, so. The positive side is we give it something simple, it comes up with something complicated. The downside of it is we, it's something complicated and we don't really understand what that complicated thing is. So let me just talk you through a couple of examples where I think that's important in policy making. So an advantage of us giving it a simple question and you know the computer kind of doing all the complicated work is where you're working in countries or where you have limited human capacity. So the example Central gave of satellite imagery uh, looking at crop yields is, is a good one for us working in development because the data that we have on crop production in most developing countries is really bad. And yet it's a very large percentage of GDP, but different ways of calculating what agricultural productivity is get you really different numbers. So we kind of have not very much idea what big chunks of GDPR in a lot of developing countries. But this satellite approach of you know, looking, looking at 
what's on the ground and figuring out how well the cassava is growing and what the production of sweet potato is this year is very promising because it substitutes for sending a lot of people out doing really hard agricultural surveys. So that's, that's a positive. The, the, the negative side, though, um, comes from that lack of transparency. And this is a kind of old question in government, is do you go with sort of rules-based or discretion-based policymaking? And do you have a simple rule that everyone can understand but may not be great? Or do you, kind of, or do you generate a rule that is really nuanced and subtle and you know, gets all the ins and outs, but we don't really understand? So if we think, for example, about the poverty targeting question, right, we could have lots of data and that could help us predict who's poor and therefore who do we send welfare payments to. The first thing to note is sometimes AI gets things spectacularly wrong. Right? Just, you know, sometimes it picks, it thinks an elephant is a cat. Right? And, and it, that's less likely to happen in human because we just, if something's so off, we're kind of quite good at picking out the really outliers and, and, and not putting those through. So, so that's a risk. But more, I think, the risk is that there's something important in a democratic um, institution of people understanding what the rule is for how we decide who is poor. And there's even evidence that people like systems that target poor that they understand. They like them better. So in Indonesia, there was an experiment where in one case, they used a lot of data to pick who was poor. And in the other, they went to communities and asked them, who in your community is poor? Now, it turns out they ended up picking pretty similar people. But in the communities where they let the community be involved in deciding who was poor, they were much happier with the allocation of the welfare payments. So if you think of it, kind of AI is the extreme of that, of not only is a computer picking it, but we don't really understand why they picked you and why they didn't pick you. So I think there's a question there about you know, how much we can use this prediction. Um, now, there are cases where having, having you know, a computer do it and not have human in involvement is actually really important and useful. So take the example of doing a census in a fragile and conflict-affected state, um, there is a huge amount of suspicion in those environments about the collection of population data because it's going to be used to determine vote shares, like how much this region gets, uh, how, you know, weight in, you know, how many seats do they get in Parliament, right? And so we know that that is manipulated a lot and people don't trust government to do it correctly because the government that's in power has, uh, a, a, you know, will often come back with data that's suppressing the numbers in the opposition area. But if you go to a kind of algorithmic, hands-off, humans not involved, satellite looking at predicting where people are, that might actually be a positive. So it's kind of understanding those trade-offs of where it's good to have human involvement and where it's not that I think is important for deciding how we use some of these techniques going forward. Um, let, me, let me just talk a bit about um, sort of a broader context of Sendel ended on this is still important to be doing impact evaluations and evaluating whether these things work. I think for governments, in my experience with Indifid, the really challenging question is how do you 
bring together different kinds of evidence to make decisions. And in particular, how do you bring evidence about the local context that's relevant to the local context? You know, where's the drought? Where's the, you know, where's agriculture doing well? Where are the people? Where's the poverty? That's all about the local context. With impact evaluations that tell us about human, you know, what works, uh, and learning from other countries. And the real policy challenge is how do you bring those two different types of evidence together? And at DFID, we've been, we've been experimenting with an approach where we do, do country diagnostics that really delve into what's the local challenges and needs of the population locally. You know, where are the, where are the problems? What's the, what are the institutional constraints? And another set of diagnostics which are Globally, what's the most effective thing that you can do to, to address these specific challenges that will be identified on the ground? And then that's the judgment of the policymaker of when do we pull on the global evidence to match the need that is, that is local, generated locally. And I think the AI work is particularly important in understanding the local context and getting this really nuanced textured um, definitions of, you know, where's the poverty, where is there going to be a drought, but we still need to draw on this global evidence of how do humans behave that requires these sort of rigorous impact evaluations of the kind that I've been involved in. Um, and thank you. David. Thanks. Um, so I thought I'd put three kind of remarks on about um, a bit about behavioral science where we're at. Sandal used to be a behavioral scientist before we went rogue. Um, sort of still half is. Um, maybe talk about some of the AI machine learning stuff um, um, and then also the broader kind of empiricism point. So, um, yeah, on the, on the behavioral science in general, I'm trying to think why also is it that behavioral scientists often have been doing a lot of um, machine learning AI. And maybe one of the things is just because we're very curious about weird results, actually. Like the cows lined up. You're looking for the anomaly. And also because you know, humans are pattern recognized, and it means we're not very good at seeing um, what we don't expect, actually, and that includes in professional judgment. Actually, on the crime stuff, um, going to it, it's a quite famous related paper, which we were in fact sharing with some firm sex with some stuff we're doing with Mark um, around overconfidence. But when you ask um, criminal justice professionals in the US to make these estimates, it's not just they're not very bad at it, you can show how you can throw the estimates widely. There's a, a very neat one where they're just given a scale on the bottom of the page, which might say zero to 40 or might say zero to 100. You know, anyway, um, it's an anchoring effect. And just by this, it's not even have to pay attention to it. It means it throws the estimate dramatically about how many people the professional thinks will reoffend just because it gives them a different anchor point. So we may have worries about some aspects of AI and machine learning. We also have to put it in the context of just how bad humans are at certain kinds of, of judgments. Anyway, we're carrying on, of course, um, I mean, Behavioral sciences um, carrying on with or without sandals. Um, and the, the interventions are getting bigger, more ambitious. Um, we've done trials now with more than 10 million at a time in some of the bits of the world. Um, in all kinds of other weird and wonderful places. Um, doing really neat stuff on reducing burnout and domestic violence. I think some of the most interesting areas, um, just very briefly, um, where our kind of key frontiers, they remain actually using, uh, Gus will appreciate, using. Um, behavioral economics on economics, um, which we've started to do, including like, do, you know, do people understand Bank of England 
inflation reports, what happens if you write them in ways that people would understand? Wouldn't that be a good idea? Um, also, I mean, our, in our view, um, in our view, uh, and, well, with quite big effects, um, there's a lot of stuff around market design. A huge amount of behavioral science is no longer really about micro. It's about, it's about the interaction between the micro behavior and how it changes behavioral equilibrium. Um, the sugar tax, of course, is a sugar levy is one example of it. But there are loads of areas where we feel there are quite big behaviorally-based market failures um, where we just haven't really begun to pull the levers effectively. Stuff around conflict, um, of course, uh, humans not getting on with each other. Um, or whether nations stay together coherently, even, you might think. Um, or social mobility issues. So it's really exciting. Actually, I still think it's, it's got a long way to go as an area. Um, but to kind of switch on to really the machine learning and AI, what, what else we do with it? Um, so you, as I said, we may, may know, we, we actually, some of you will know, we have been using machine learning in BOT. We did a report a couple of years ago now almost um, with some early illustrations. Because one of our frustrations is on the one hand, there are concerns about how it's being used by some commercial players. Um, I mean, it's fine, choose your movie, but what else is it being used for to optimize, to, to capture attention, to keep a kid online for as long as possible, you know, et cetera, some of which look problematic and regulators have struggled with. But at the same time, as your examples illustrate, and people in this room will be thinking, God, there's so many things we could and should be using in the public sector which we've not done. So we did these very quick demonstration projects, partly based on um, trying to replicate what Mike Bloomberg had done with smart data in the US. I won't go through all of them, but I think they do illustrate the power. So just one, for those who don't know it, we, we try to work out who's a bad doctor, who's a bad GP in the UK system. So we have a regulator, we have a whole inspection system. It took three years for our regulator to do one cycle to inspect all our GPs in the UK. And so we're kind of interesting, well, of course, in retrospect, can we build a machine learning model to work out who is the so-called inadequate doctors, just a couple of percent? Um, anyway, the short answer is, oh, yeah, we really can. And the key was not only using the regulator's own data they would use, but you could combine census data with prescription data and a number of other sources. And on a 20% cut, 20% sample, we could get 95% of the inadequate GPs identified. I mean, really good. So you could just say, well, that's fine. Um, CQC can now sack two-thirds of their inspectors. It would be one possibility. But our interest was because you can then dock onto it, in principle, um, the interventions. Right, well, so why do we want to know this? Because we want to know as to whether we could intervene earlier with the GP whose actually practice looks problematic and give them some extra cues. And we had done interventions, and we may know around antimicrobial resistance and prescriptions for antibiotics. We've also done it around cancer rates, GPs who, have, who are under-prescribing for um, cancer symptoms and so on. But now we've got using machine learning, we can work out where to apply them. Um, it's just super powerful. Um, I mean, other areas we've worked on um, around, for example, um, Jonathan, you'll know, uh, John Slater, uh, around um, kids who are marked as no further actions in the youth social work system. And we flipped it that way around rather the other way. Um, and try and work out, well, how precisely can you figure out how many of those kids marked for no further action? It turned out you made a mistake. And it's nothing like 95%, but it's still, you know, on a kind of 5 6% sample, we could get about half of the cases, right, really in, important. Um, but we're not really... I think anyone in the room would say we're not reusing it in a massive way. There are little bits of the system that's being used a bit about some parts of not criminal justice mainstream, but like AI in relation to going through massive amounts of data in the criminal justice system occasionally. But we're, we're not really using the mining of the data. And I think your challenge is exactly right about it's very powerful. You know, the kid who can come home and give, give an incredibly accurate advice about which movie they'll enjoy next 
and yet we can't in our educational system. Same would be true for technical education, right? Or actually, what's the right choice for you um, in, in terms of your options in front of you? You know, kids who are giving up maths way too early um, and so on and so on. Um, and so it's got to be part of our future, and we should really accelerate it. I know you had someone talking from Singapore, of course, this morning. We were partly prompted to do so because we saw Singapore using these techniques around um, can you predict traffic 10 minutes before the accident, sorry, before the, the, the traffic jam will occur. And they actually a pretty good model is built also with IBM and Carnegie Mellon. And then redirect your traffic in advance, right? Built a smart traffic system. Or they were doing also in their, a, a true AI model in some ways, in, with, in the tax system, although well, I think they've stopped using it, where people make inquiries and then you get essentially a machine which gives a first line of response. But then it, it's looking at whether, if the person wasn't happy with it, that they say, I don't think that's right, and then gets referred to a human and it's genuinely machine learning to iterate and improve. Well, you know, wh why not? And a question I think also for us in more policy terms is, Where's the R&D capacity which we are building to do this in government? And um, David and I think a lot about innovation systems, and we think about that also as government. If it's a third of the economy, you know, what are the opportunities um, to apply it? And I just don't think we're anything like enough. Um, just to bring it together and also go back to Rachel's point, um, obviously I have my other hat on as national advisor on what works and how does it all fit together. Well, these are just part of a wider family of techniques to, to make better policy and actually practice. Um, so I've always felt one of the key lessons of the behavioral insights team, not only in the UK, but in many other countries which we now support and help, um, is that it just smuggled into government very strong forms of empiricism, running randomized controlled trials, testing multiple variations. Why would you only do that letter? Why wouldn't you do you know, five others and see which is more effective? Um, very practice. Um, but you know, they're one technique. But another, of course, is just to, to take advantage of the existing natural variance, which is what a lot of the machine learning work is doing to exploit the variation in our system and practice to figure out, well, actually, what works better for who. It's just like it's the equivalent to me in the policy and practice world of a kind of a rainforest, right? There's like all these amazing drugs which are just waiting to be discovered if we haven't destroyed it, but, you know, um, to figure out this, that variance. Um, but we haven't really f finished building a system that enables us to do that. So the what works stuff is not just, of course, using randomized controlled trials, but it should absolutely be this kind of mining as well in a much, much more intense way. They are part of the same family. Um, and since we're forward-looking, um, actually, um, David and Bromley both mentioned the What Works stuff actually last night. And um, I do think it doesn't get much public profile, but it is really important. And it is an area where it feels to me that government has pivoted in a significant extent. So just to take, we actually now have 14, I think, um, What Works centers, um, which we recognize as such. Um, and some of the kind of well-known Educational Endowment Foundation, more than a million kids in the UK taking part in controlled trials. Um, uh, I mean, the world didn't end, rather important result. It's also important to result, one of the things that I think people haven't absorbed is that the average effect sizes are quite small and that we should take that on board, right? So a lot of things aren't going to work. So even EEF, having filtered things, about you know, three quarters of what they then try and test doesn't work. And in both sides, actually, of the US and the UK, when people have aggregated now the effect sizes for these many interventions, 180, for example, for EEF, um, they were originally calibrated like a, a large effect size is kind of 0.8, a small effect size is 0.2. The average effect size is 0.06, which is exactly the same number that's been found on both sides of the Atlantic. So is that terrible? No, that's probably what we should expect. And partly it's because we talk about academics and publication bias. Boy, you want to talk about that, I get into the policy world. 
right? We read the world, we, we see our successes, we don't really test them. And so it's actually, our calibration is completely wrong. When we go and test a lot of these things, it turns out a lot of them aren't working, but that's still, we want to we wanna know that. And then finally, just kind of bring together, you know, um, the, uh, we have the internal changes, the trial advisory panel, the rewriting of the Green Book. It's a different way of doing policy, right? Just to say, we don't know what's going on, to have this kind of humility to it. The machine learning also drags you into that world because it throws up these surprises. It's, in fact, some people don't like it because it's so atheoretical, right? But actually, that's, a, that's not a bad place to be, often, as a starting point. Uh, but I thought I'd just conclude, the, the kind of latest of the What Works centers is the, um, the Youth Endowment Fund, um, which is 200 million um, just went into it. it was, it's directed at uh, particularly youth crime and violence um, to try and find solutions. So that's quite a lot of money spread over 10 years, put an arm's length from government to try and figure out what works. Fine, let's, let's try some of the models, in fact, from Chicago, not least, um, or Boston or Glasgow, and will they work in London and where else? But the other detail that um, probably most people haven't attended, and to, no reason why, is um, it's trying out lots of new things with the expectation of an 80% failure rate, right? To build that, and actually that is, that is the world we're in. You know, it would be great to be more than that, but to build policy in a way which we are systematically testing different things, expecting a lot of it not to work, and then finding out those gems that do work, right? So to me, um, and can we, I think we've all said it in our own kind of way, I think if we're optimistic, it's like why do things happening in the world? There's this very, very positive change about a kind of methodological sophistication which is creeping into policy. Maybe the public aren't really aware of it, but it's really significant and actually machine learning, behavioral insights, user randomized control trials, but they're actually part of this wider package. And if we do follow through on it, we've got every grounds to think that, you know, we can, we can really make the world a better place. Awesome. Thank you. Thanks. Thank you for opening remarks, which seem to have covered the entire field there in some way. We've had algorithmic bias. We've had whether that's worse than human bias in decision-making. We've had the abundance of data, how you bring different types of evidence together, um, sort of accountability problems. And I could ask questions all day, but I will come out to the audience very quickly. Um, I'm just going to ask one quick question um, to all of you, and again, anything that you want to address in other remarks that have been made, um, do feel free to um, say that as well. Um, I suppose the question is, how would you like to see government and governments bringing these techniques into the policy process? Because we've heard lots of sort of particular examples, but what can government do to make the most of the opportunities, but also to guard against some of those risks that you've all touched on? Sandil, I don't know if you want to go first. Um, sure, yeah, I, I'm sorry. I'll just want to pick up on one thread. I, I love these comments, and just one thread to connect them to, which it just it's worth saying is, I think, Rachel, you had asked what sits at the intersection of these things. And I think it's, it's related, um, David, to your point, that it's, it's not implausible that we're getting small effect sizes on a lot of things we're trying because we're not yet having figured out how to target the treatments to the right people. Just echoing things Rachel had said as well. And it's possible that we might be living in a world where more precision targeting of a bunch of interventions might actually, even take interventions that right now don't look um, don't look efficacious because they're close to zero. But in fact, for 10%, they were pretty efficacious. So I don't know. So it just feels like th this just to underline the idea that there's a lot more synergy here, I think, between these things. But I, as to how governments would do it, I, I guess I'd pick up on David's point that this is, there seems to be an underinvestment right now in, in R&D in this activity. Like, I think governments are putting dollars into it, but 
it wouldn't surprise me if weight rose puts a higher amount of proportional dollars into it than the government. I mean, you look in the private sector, a lot of private sector companies are putting a lot of dollars effectively into these activities. And so given that this has a bit of an R&D-like function, it would seem like you should at least match that level of investment that other, it, it's just new technologies come online, adopting them into any existing organization requires a whole new investment. And I think, as you said, it, the empiricism entering into the system, it's just, it's just gonna require a lot more investment in resources. And I think how you do that, I'm sure you two will have a much better idea, but just the level, I think, needs to be much higher. Yeah, I think one of the roles of government, uh, you talked at the beginning about the difference between you know, case studies where things were, where data was open and uh, the work was collaborative, and you know, if this is a global public good, then we need to, uh, and there's a lot of, benefits from kind of interaction and pooling data across different kinds. I mean, a lot of the, what we're learning is because we can merge this data set to that data set, but we can't do that unless they're open. So I think, you know, one role for government, of course, is investment, but it's also to create the platforms that allow the collaboration across. Um, and so, you know, an example of that in the development field is we're working with governments to set up I mean, India has this really uh, good system of uh, digital identification, which is a system on which a lot of other platforms have been able to build, but it is a government system that then, uh, and it's relatively simple, they didn't try and do something too complicated. Um, it's universal, it's simple, and then other, other things can be built on it. So, so taking that idea and helping governments, you know, poorer governments set up that kind of digital identity on which other things can build. So setting up the common platforms on which people can build, I think, is really um, an important uh, role that government can play. Can I just add one quick thing to that? The, the NHS is perfectly primed for this activity. It could produce the ImageNet for computational medicine and transform that entire field going forward. And it is, it's like one of the few places that could do that with the modest amount. I mean, it's got the data. It's right. not in a way that the U.S. couldn't. But it has to be open, whereas at the moment Absolutely. my understanding is they're letting, the NHS is often letting private companies come in and play with the data, but and then right. it's right. Then it's private. And, and the, the irony is that you wouldn't yeah. even need to take that much of it. Like at Nightingale, what they're doing is just observing. You don't need that much data for this, you, this public good part to operate. One percent of the NHS data would be more than enough to just be an open, I mean, yeah. not open, it's health data, yeah. so it's not open. I, I shouldn't be able to download it, but easy yeah. to access. Yeah. yeah, I mean, on that one, of course, getting the data architecture is a key priority. I think, actually, the Institute is doing something in this space anyway. Um, the ADR, the Administrative Data Research Network, ADR UK, I think, is now called, um, is key to this because you do have to, to do the machine learning, you have to have very, very detailed, you know, not just, you know, anonymizing. You have to actually link these different data sets, but then also ha do so in a way which the public are, trust, trust are comfortable with and is not leading to leakage, which is not a trivial matter. But we ought to be able to do it in a million different ways, you know, be it from, you know, universal credit, who are the people you can do very, very rapidly, who are the ones actually you need to look at more carefully, or of course health, absolutely, bearing in mind the public um, appetite. But in terms of scale of activity, I don't know, you did ask it. Um, of course, machine learning does give us use of fertility. I mean, you combine these techniques and you can work out, you can address the Angus Deaton critique of RCTs, which is that, you know, the average effect size versus the, you know, the specific, 
they, they you know, ought to enable us to do that, working out what works for who in more precise ways in these bigger data sets. But to you know, contextualize that, you know, Amazon is spending what roughly three to four times more the than the entire UK government spends on all of our R&D, UKRI type thing. Mm -hmm. I think we spend roughly, you probably have the number better than me, I think we're probably, if you took the UKRI budget in a bit, we're about what VW spends, I think. You know? So is that the right number? Probably not. Um, but it also, just forget, it's not just about the amount of money, it's where do we spend it. Um, and you know, we did this thing with two people in a year, and we had six use cases. So it doesn't actually have to be super expensive, but we do have to do it. Thank you. Um, let's take some questions from the audience. I'll take a few at once. If anybody is in the room next door and would like to ask a question, please come to the door. And do remember we are on the record and being live streamed. So I will start with the lady right by the camera, uh, then the gentleman a couple of rows behind. And actually, let's take the lady in green there as well. And I'll come back to the rest of you uh, next time. Yeah, Nishad is the Ministry of Justice. Uh, we hold a lot of data, uh, including linked data sets across government, and we are really interested in getting this data out into the community, but we are coming across a lot of ethical issues because some of the data we collect is not, you know, people don't sign a declaration agreement when we, you know, when data go into the police national computer. So, uh, so this is a big problem for us. So the, the way we're trying to get around is like, you know, bringing in the data science capability within government, but it would be easier if we can kind of spread the effort across. And I just wondered whether there were some good examples of how people have overcome this. Particularly, we have it even within departments in terms of accessing other departments' data to link to our data sets. So I just wondered whether across the world, whether there were good practices that we could kind of count on. Hi, sorry, Gus O'Donnell, former civil servant. I wanted to say, send over, that was a brilliant uh, presentation, and I'm just thinking about the number one IEA rule about clarity of outcomes and what we do with the cows. And if I'm on the Lake District and the fog comes down, I now know, and I haven't got a compass, so I just find the cows. So <laughs> that's fine. Um, but seriously, Ra Rachel's example, I thought, of the, the poor and having an algorithm versus uh, asking the village was really interesting, but it struck me that the kind of presumption that asking the village was better, and that might include, improve the well-being of the village, as it were, because they think it's fairer, but it might well be that they didn't want to give money to these poor people because of prejudice, because of how they thought they'd get, you know, moral judgments about that. So it strikes me, and it, and it was the same with the, the question about the algorithm for uh, arrests and detention, that there are quite a lot of ethical judgments built in there and the same is true of what, what some of the work that David was doing. And I think we need to be quite explicit about these ethical judgments that we're building in. And we need a, a debate, just as we are explicit about value of injury and death and stuff like that. We need to start building these in, because otherwise implicit ones come through, and they tend to be treating everybody the same, which may not be the right answer. Thank you. And the lady with Helena Fox, Department of Business, Energy and Industrial Strategy. Um, so my question is about data gathered from AI in the human context. Um, forgive me now for vastly oversimplifying the complex science of behavioral economics, but um, given Sendhill's earlier example of an algorithm predicting whether police officers are likely um, to, to um, 
prohibit, sorry, to exhibit bad behaviors, for example. Um, are you, given what you do next with that data, are you not more likely to predispose that person, for example, to that given behavior that you're actually trying to control? And is there a line that you've got to toe there with how you implement all this information? And are you not just kind of going to basically predispose people even further to what you, what you are identifying? Thank you. Let's go first. Um, so on the uh, good practices, um, I mean, tax tax administrations have to deal with this all the time, and they do have researchers working on this. Um, you know, the, the US government has lots of protocols of also colleagues who've worked with the Chilean government. Um, sometimes it's, you know, you can come in and use the data inside. So first of all, you make them go through a lot of ethical hoops, but sometimes, you know, you can come in and use the data and run things internally, or if for even more confidential data, give us what you want to run and we'll run it. So there are actually a whole set of, of procedures for more, you know, really sensitive to pretty sensitive data which, which you can use, you can allow academics to come in and use. So I think, do that, yes. yeah, so I think. Yeah, so I mean, once you're giving it mass scale, I think it's quite hard because you end up having to take out a lot of the identifying, which is particularly useful for doing the linking. You can't then do the linking. So um, so that might be a bit harder. I, I, um, on the ethical judgment, I think, I think there's biases that, you know, there's biases in all the different ways of doing this. I think for me, there is something about the transparency that at least you know what the rule is. And that then people can criticize and say, well, actually that rule it, you know, is biased against women or this ethnic group. Um, so I wasn't necessarily saying we should always have villages. I was just using, you know, choosing people. I was just using it as an example that people have to have confidence in some rule, some, some, some aspects people need to have confidence in the rules. And you can actually would trade off a less good rule that they at least knew what it was, um, which I think is important. And on the last part, I think people's response, I think the main issue is that people will respond. Once we take, develop these algorithms and use them, people will then change their behavior, right? Potentially. And so we need, that comes back to Sandal's point as that we need to test. You know, you can't just use the descriptive data and make policy on it. You also then have to test the policies that you come up with. Uh, and the first point I would add, you know, Medicare, the, the big payer in the U.S., if you're over 65, has been making their claims data widely available to all researchers, a 5% or 1% or a 10%, sometimes even a 20% sample. Um, for, for decades now, and it has been super effective and super, and one, uh, I think Rachel's point about having sort of layers is exactly, you know, some intermediate layer for the most sensitive data. Usually I think about these things as doorways. You wanna have some layer that's very public in some sense. It doesn't need to have everything, but what that is is that's the invitation for people to get interested, work on it, and if they get, and as they find things, then they'll say, hey, can we come in and work on the more sensitive data inside? So I applaud your attempt to have the, 
And I think I would learn from the Medicare claims case, and maybe the intuition they have is that the, there's, there's a very big difference between the data needs for statistical purposes and for privacy. Privacy is about identifying an individual. Statistics is the exact opposite. It's, it's really all about aggregation. And so it's just a, a, an intuition you can have in your mind is that if I literally took all your variables and I simply added noise to all of them in a predefined way, now no one is identifiable because I've just noised everything up. But the statistics will still work because I know what's the noise I added. So there are techniques for this, and I think that I, I, I think keeping the best data in-house, but I, I, I definitely think there are techniques. I, lo I look at Medicare claims. There's work on what people call differential privacy. And so there's a, a, an area, and I'm happy to connect you with people. Um, let me just uh, say one thing that might be a meta point about the other comments. I hope my talk didn't come off as glib, because what I really wanted to say was, we're starting something. We're starting the process of applying these tools and answering these questions. I think if anything, the private sector has been way too fast because they only care about the dollar outcome. I think whenever you start doing new projects like this, you need to over-resource everything. Having, asking every question, asking the questions about transparency, testing it out afterwards, seeing are there these consequences. And I think what we just need is more use cases that are carefully constructed end to end with maybe David's point about 80% failure, recognizing when you do a new thing, there will be bumps on the road. We will have unexpected things. Oh, we didn't realize people would react this way. And so I think this is as much a call to say, there's so much potential here, but I hope I didn't come across as glib, like we're just gonna lay the roads and cars are gonna start running. It's that now let's start. You know, It took time before we were able to run RCTs well in the field. So I think it, there'll be required equivalent time to get these working right. Um, and so I think all the issues you raise, I totally agree. Yeah. So it's very briefly on the um, uh, use case. I mean, everyone's very obsessed with this. Estonia, of course, super linked to everything, but tiny populations. Um, I do think one of the lessons we might learn from it, apart from, you know, you get examples like uh, Raj Chetty's access to the IRS, incredible, interesting work in the US. Could we do some of the same? Trusted individual. But otherwise, it's much more likely to be in space if we go to larger scales, as Sandal was describing, which is you use other kinds of methods. So in the ADRP, often you don't, you may not have to link every data set completely. What in fact you're doing sometimes is you can say, well, we'll do the analysis here, and then you, as it were, you send off an inquiry to another database. So, well, we've now done this analysis, and how is this thousand people different from this thousand people? Can you give us back the average? So, I mean, or you, so there are ways of, of doing it and constructing your database, which means they're more robust to if someone does get access to it, like, oh my God, you know, which it really appropriates concern. Um, the only thing I do think, um, which the Estonian case also illustrates, is that we should have use cases which are useful to citizens. So the nice example of the, what does the kid choose, you know, which maths course, you know, what are these other examples which are useful to citizens as opposed to just, you know, a kind of elite level. And if we lead with that, we're much more likely to have public support um, as well. On the very specific other ones, um, on Gus's point, um, there's a, I think there's a narrow and a, a broader answer to, which is, you know, there's the issues around um, algorithmic bias, you know, which is you just train, basically you're training data, you're training an algorithm to figure out some discrimination. And of course, you, you can perfectly reproduce the same errors. You can, you know, um, the system will exactly replicate the biases that were built into it. So you, you get drawn very rapidly in as Roger Taylor and others are thinking about these issues of algorithmic bias. But there's another one which is maybe less rehearsed, which is what is your gold standard? So an issue that you and I both care about, about, you know, well-being or whatever. Um, Say so if you're trying to make the decision about uh, what to do, or actually a current issue in Britain is teaching excellence, 
well, what does constitute teaching excellence in an HE or whatever? Like, it might be, your gold standard could be, well, who goes on to earn what? Or is it what the student says, like, actually, Central, he's really cool. I give him lots of points. Or is it that you... <laughs> okay. it's quite or is it, but you know what I mean? Do I go on to have a good life? Actually, what are you training it to when you're answering the question, which is the right course? That's quite a profound question, it turns out. And indeed, the individual, you might want to dish out it and ask them the question, what was important to you? And then this is what the algorithm would then have said. Um, on the last point, just about, um, you knew raising issue about criminal justice system, etc. Well, I mean, remember, even from old-style longitudinal data, we know it is disastrous for that point at which the kid moves into the criminal justice system that all their outcomes, you know, in discontinuity design, get worse. Um, but just take, I don't know, the Met. I mean, the Met alone. Well, God, we were just looking at numbers the other day about um, the number of kids who are picked up come into the criminal justice system. Or, and the police literally have to decide what to do with them, where do they refer them on or where do they not. Um, you know, these are real decisions being made day in, day out, let alone before you get to jail, um, these early touch points. We're not very effective at redirecting. We're not effective at making those choices. And we're asking this officer, who may not have access to very much of the, you know, the background and the detail, to make a really difficult, potentially life-changing choice. What are we going to do to aid them? And just to go back to the example of the stuff we were doing on Kids Mark for No Further Action, we also made a choice which is, we think, part of the story is you're building a system not just to work in abstraction, but to give feedback to the professional. So we made choices in the architecture to say, essentially, it's a tr in some ways, it's a training tool that goes back to the social work, which highlights what it is in the case records which is creating the flag, and therefore why the concern is, and you might want to ask some further question about it. But it's creating a feedback loop able to draw on absolutely, literally tens of thousands of cases for the social worker to be a better social worker. It's not that we're just saying, now you just trust the machine. It makes a social worker a better social worker. And the same would be true for a, a police officer. So that fits, I think, also with Rachel's point about where do you marry the machine with the human is part of our story, it has to be. And a quick point before I take the next round of questions, just on the data access and sharing. I think the National Audit Office have got a report coming out on this in a few weeks. And if you want a sneak preview of that report, you can go to the Institute for Government website, or shameless self-promotion. Uh, we've got an event series called Data Bytes, and somebody from the National Audit Office uh, was talking about that last week. Um, so you can find out more there. Uh, next set of questions, which may be our last, unless we can get these done quite quickly. I've got one there, one there, and then one there as well. Uh, Peter Fitzsimons from the Department of Education. I thought I'd ask a question about uh, spectacular failure. So uh, when Netflix gives a bad recommendation, we don't really care. But in health or children's services, I could potentially kill someone. Um, and I wondered whether you thought we'd just have to get comfortable with failure, whether there are better safeguards that we have to put in place, any other solutions that you would think about. Thank you. Hi, um, Oliver Standing at the National Alliance of Drug and Alcohol Charities. Kind of a, a good follow-on question from that, actually. Um, you know, I'm really sold on a lot of the exciting stuff which has been talked about just now. There does seem to be a piece of work which is about kind of bringing along the general public with some of this stuff as well. Um, you can just see a sort of newspaper headline uh, following a sort of um, an erroneous judgment from an algorithm on a judicial thing. You know, robot judge, jail of my innocent son kind of thing. How can we communicate this in a really clear, compelling way that is breaking down some of those assumptions people might have and, and framing it positively. Uh, ben Alexander. I wondered, are machine learning algorithms 
essentially very complex numerical methods for establishing correlation, after which, particularly in a public policy environment, we need to take care to establish causation before using them? Or is there any evidence that you can actually train machine learning algorithms to effectively target genuine causal relationships? Thank you very much. Three more great questions. Who'd like to take them first? I'll just start with the last one and work backwards. I think the, the idea of correlation versus causation um, can be a bit um, thorny in the, in, the, in the following sense. It's not the case that we, um, it's, it's not the case that we operate on causation, that there's a whole set of problems where we operate purely on correlation in the sense that if I'm the judge and I'm looking at who's going to uh, um, pose a flight risk. I'm not interested in causal factors that drive flight risk. I'm interested in anything that will be a reliable predictor of flight risk. And I think the big divide for me is, I do think people are making progress in using these algorithms for causation, but I actually think they'll never get to the, to the level of a good RCT. So in some sense, we should just really start with what are the areas where meaningful aggregated correlations are what we want. So just to illustrate it, a good recommender system, it's not telling me that because I saw these movies, watching those movies made me like this one. It's just a marker. And there are many problems where correlation is what we seek. And so part of what was hard for me to work, move into this area was to switch my mind a little bit and start looking for those problems because it's, I hadn't been looking for them. I'd been looking for causal problems. So I'm just flagging that. Um, uh, the failure in the general public, I think, I, I think this is surely one of the, 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 the challenging issues in the following sense. I think that there's a benchmark we're, we're going against. So in a statistical sense, we're only going to even consider piloting and testing these tools when they beat that benchmark, when you do significantly better than the human, which means on average there will be less failures this is right by the algorithm. But then that raises your question, which is, might a failure by the algorithm be viewed very differently? And here I'm, I'm just reminded of this great, I used to have this photo in my talk of, it was amazing, and what was the World's Fair? It must have been the 19, anyway, it was, it was an early World's Fair where Otis, um, of Otis elevator fame, was standing on his elevator and was about to cut the rope uh, to just convince people that, it, that elevators were safe. It has brakes, it has everything. And it was a long time before people truly trusted elevators. I don't know if you noticed, but this is why there was elevator music. This is why when there started to be automated elevators, did you guys notice? For about 20 years after there were automated elevators, there were still people pushing buttons. Because people didn't feel safe getting into an elevator if there, if there wasn't someone there running it. Picture now getting into an elevator and someone's running it. You'd be like, but what is going on? So I think that under this sort of speeding up process, I think is absolutely key. And I would actually think that going to areas where there's already true value created and where there's a human along with, the, with an algorithm is probably the best place to go. Like for example, I believe now we're at a point where in some of our medical work, we're finding signals, say in x-rays, that doctors can't see. But still in the delivery of that signal, surely, having the doctor present is without question necessary. But partly because we don't know what the algorithm 
might be missing. That was to Rachel's point. But partly also just that's the right user interface back to the, to the end audience. Um, so, so let me come back to the correlation and causation question because I think that's important. Um, I, I mean, I agree with Sendel that it's, it's about, these are different questions. And I think coming back to the point about government use of data, the key thing that I think is important is training, uh, you know, all the civil servants and the people who are making decisions is really understanding what kind of data you need to answer which kind of question. Is it a correlation question? Is it a causation question? And at one point, in one way, I can say it's very simple to do that. I mean, I'll give you, you know, the example of figuring out which kids are falling behind is a sort of descriptive correlational question. How do you predict which kids are going to have problems is a prediction question. What is the best way to teach kids who are falling behind or are going to have those problems? Um, is a correlation, is a causation question. We want to test different approaches. Um, and I also think the challenge that I've, um, that I've been working on in DFID is to help people understand it's also not just, you know, good RCTs and good impact evaluations aren't just asking about this particular program. They're telling us something about how human beings work and how they respond to different stimulus. So, you know, the fact that we under underinvest in preventative health care is a common thing that happens across the whole world, like all humans have that characteristic. We've learned a lot about that, that they're price sensitive from good RCTs. You've got to build that understanding of how humans respond into designing your programs to fix the problem that descriptive evidence has given us. So, so using these different kinds of pieces of evidence really you know, the causal, the causal evidence is really at that kind of slightly higher meta level. That's what it's good at doing. Um, and it helps solve the problem that we've been talking about, which is you can introduce some, a policy based on correlation, people will respond to it, and it will turn out being something else. But understanding the causal evidence about how humans respond will help you predict that you know, how people will respond to a, the Lucas critique. And, um, sorry, I'll leave the other ones to other people. Sorry, quickly on the, um, the, the correlation stuff. Um, remember, correlation often does at least suggest there may be causation. Um, so that's not um, despite the common expression. Um, it's also humans are awful at seeing correlations. In fact, Tony, um, Johnny Kahneman and Tversky's work, some of the original work, was literally on giving people a set of numbers that had a correlation in it and asking them, do you think there is or isn't? Just a small number of numbers. And people are really bad at it. Um, just to understand the mechanics, I mean, there are lots of different these techniques, but once, for example, we, I was alluding to earlier, we're using sort of six-level trees. So in other words, you're looking at like six, six interaction terms, like you know, a man of this age having this drug, being like, you know, many combinations way beyond you can ever try. Um, so you can see patterns that you'll never spot by accident, since we can't even see the simple correlation. That, of course, creates a corollary issue, which is you can then get spurious correlation. So just those who don't know, what you would do is you, you train the model on one set of data, but you keep some back. And then after you've run your minions, and you, know, you think this, and you might constrain it by some notion, is, is this plausible? You then test it on your other set. So that's a, a, a key test that you have to use, but then that's clearly not enough because then it sets up hypotheses, particularly if you're going to then do an intervention. Well, if we then do this thing with this population, would it make a difference? On the final, just one of the other points from the other questions um, about 
um, the error and how it'll go wrong. It is interesting that we are very unforgiving. Maybe we're like at the lift stage, the elevator stage, you know, the one which is well rehearsed around. Um, we are much more unforgiving of an automated vehicle killing someone than we are of a human, um, which is kind of interesting. Why, why is that? But it does seem to be where public sentiment is at, and it may well be true for these systems. So it is really important that we choose our early use cases. So the ones we try to choose, like um, it isn't who you'll put into prison, but it might be the kid who actually it turns out you could let go. You could take a chance on them, and you can so you can choose in an asymmetric way where you push your margin. And so the last part, I do think, so I'm a, I've always been a big believer in, not only on the paper science, but in general, we should have stronger mechanisms that enable the public in a sophisticated way to give their view, which is not just the reaction in the Daily Mail. So I've always been struck by how NICE has always had lay members, you know, on, around which treatments are and are not acceptable, on its expert panels. And I think this perfectly applies in these areas too. So it's not just that we need a bundle of experts to say, are we okay or are we not? It's perfectly reasonable to say, well, could we have samples of the public on issues like this where you say, actually, what are the parameters that are acceptable? And that applies actually not only in government, it also applies to commercial players. So if Facebook or others want to talk about we're using these algorithms in a major way, it's appropriate for us to say, is the governance good enough amongst the user community who are being essentially shaped through these tools? Um, is it set in a way that suits them, or is it not, right? And actually, one of the actions of government might be to inject stronger forms of governance into where these techniques are being used, not only in the public sector, but in the private sector too. Thank you very much. I think we're probably out of time to go back to the audience. But I will just give each panellist a couple of sentences if they want to come up with any final thoughts. And also just ask them one final question, which is, if we were having this discussion in 10 years' time about the future policymaking, what do you think we'd be talking about? So, David, maybe if you want to conclude. Sure, first. I hope I struck, you know, I worked for six years with Tony Blair, and he has this great line where he says, if Atlee came back, you know, be amazed by technology and mobile phones and so on, and he'd come to Whitehall and be like, oh, great. Unchanged. Um, and that is still, to a significant extent, true. Um, I hope that wouldn't be true in 10 years because of the use of, of some of these techniques we've talked about. I feel like they are, they are no-brainers. and for, <laughs> I'm optimistic. Great, yeah. thank you. Rachel. Uh, someone who's left Whitehall for 20 years and then came back recently, um, I, I think quite a lot has changed. I mean, I was still clip, clipping, um, you know, little red flags onto pieces of paper that were sent round in trolleys when I left. So we, we <laughs> I'm slightly more optimistic about how we've changed and certainly I think how we've incorporated, you know, the, the evidence base um, into, into what we're doing. I, I've been extremely impressed at, at how DFID does that. Um, in terms of what we'll be talking about, um, I think uh, Sendel mentioned personalization, and I think this is the real area of uh, where this, this kind of technology is allowing us to go. Uh, personalization of learning, uh, personalization of advice on agriculture, whole range of topics. So, but I think the, the persistent government question is going to be, how much do we want to personalize and how much do we want to be the same? Um, as the ability to personalize becomes greater, how much do we want to maintain some, something that's common? Uh, I think that's going to be a big question of the future. Thank you. And finally, Sendel. So, um, I don't know if many of you watch Star Trek. Um, at least you know what it is. <laughs> it's, it's amazing to me that in this 
24th century, I guess it's set, 24th century. Uh, you know, the laws of physics have been so bent that we can fast, you know, travel faster than time, uh, faster than light, that we can have things that dematerialize you and rematerialize you elsewhere that teleport. You know, it's pretty amazing. So you picture these writers looked to the future and imagined all of these things. But the enterprise was still driven by two people. There was no idea of a self-driving enterprise. <laughs> they even had a windshield to look through. So it, I'm just saying this because I think that it's very easy when we have these truly transformative technologies to look to the future. I think the most exciting thing about these technologies is that we don't know how they're going to torque. We just have no idea. So for me, the excitement is just going out and doing things in deliberate, thoughtful ways. Because I promise you, what you'll be talking about in 10 years is something, it's going to be the self-driving enterprise. It is going to be a thing we haven't thought of yet, which is why it's an exciting time to be in. I mean, we've all been in areas that are stale. This is not stale. Great, cool stuff is happening. Brilliant, thank you. Before I hand over to Bronwyn for some closing remarks, please join me in thanking our fantastic panel for a great discussion. Thank you. Rachel, David, and our very own Gavin. Um, I must say, I found today really the most um, exhilarating antidote to what I feel is the claustrophobia of Brexit. And, you know, to be reminded that smart people in many different countries are wrestling with these questions of how, how to make government work better and are coming up with answers to it, I found enormously refreshing. We uh, began with a sweeping keynote by the senior minister of Singapore, Taman Shang uh, Murugatnam, on uh, really starting with questions of uh, people's failure of trust in government, going on to equality and social mobility, and then reaching for you know, some of the very practical policy solutions. As he said, he was aiming for a sense of moral and practical goals that a government might throw itself at. And it was a sweep of ideas there that I know a lot of you found enormously stimulating. I didn't mean this as a, as a, as a black joke. I mean, we, we are very conscious in the UK of how uh, uh, you know, competition for to be the next prime minister that no, might in normal times generate a lot of ideas, a lot of policy suggestions, is kind of deadened by this great boulder of Brexit sitting there as a great binary uh, thing that people can't really get round. And I'm delighted we've managed to do that today. We've had terrific sessions on uh, people, on finance, on uh, how did government should deal with the private sector, indeed how the private sector should deal with government, and, uh, and just now on, on policy making. And um, ag again, the size and scope of the questions and answers I think has been enormously refreshing for us at the Institute. It's given us a lot of ideas and I hope you too. We don't uh, entirely stop there. For those of you who, who want more, we have uh, tomorrow morning's launch of my predecessor, Peter Riddle's book called 15 Minutes of Power on how to be a minister. I didn't think when I was discussing the title with Peter six months ago and we were settling on, on that, with a picture of an MP clinging to the clock face of, of Big Ben, that both power and 15 minutes might be both too generous for... <laughs> 
Um, but if you want to come to that, uh, try and coax a place off our brilliant events team or watch on the live stream. And then in the same way, we have um, the Cabinet Secretary, Mark Sedwell, talking tomorrow afternoon around 5 o'clock on, indeed, the theme of this conference, the challenges of a modern government. Um, so, look, with that, I'm going to close. Thank you all for terrific questions, terrific conversation in, in the breaks, and to our speakers, thank you that many of you have taken a lot of trouble to get here. We're absolutely delighted. It has given us exactly the range uh, and uh, uh, refreshing quality that we wanted, and with minimal uh, reference to what we in London refer to as the, the, the B word, or in, in, the, in, in the Australia, but if you want that, you can follow our brilliant Brexit team, or indeed switch on your news feeds, where you will find that MPs have just voted down the latest attempt to block no deal, right? Right. On that note, thank you very much indeed for coming.